Welcome to Landmark Worship Center's audio podcast. We hope that this message will inspire and encourage your life. So open your heart and mind and receive what God has for you today. And the title of my message is, Hello, my name is blank. Um, obviously, it seemed like a pretty good fit to rename the, the youth group and announce that today. <laughs> Um, but we've been we've been singing about it. We've been singing about the name of Jesus. We've been singing uh, about rewriting our history and all of that. And I believe God has a plan in place because He knows He knows better than I do um, what needs to be said. And so that's my title for today: is "Hello, my name is." And so uh, let's start off with uh, everybody saying their name all at once. Hello, my name is. Go ahead. Beautiful. That's a beautiful name. Um, what's in a name? You've heard that phrase mentioned a lot, probably. What's in a name? William Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, this moment was spoken by uh, uh, Juliet in Act 2, Scene 2, if that means anything to anyone. doesn't mean anything to me. But uh, she says it to herself, and I like how this was in the explanation of it. Now, this was on a Shakespeare uh, blog or something, so that they, they said she says this to herself whilst on her balcony, uh, but overheard by Romeo. I didn't even realize they had last names, I just assumed they were Romeo and Juliet, like Madonna or something, um, but their names were Romeo and Juliet. Her name was Juliet Capulet, we'll say, uh, I'll let you figure that out, and then uh, Romeo Montag, uh, that's probably wrong too, but they had last names, and apparently it was kind of like a Hatfield-McCoy situation where uh, the families were feuding and, and all of this stuff. You know, I, I kind of know the, like, details of the story, the, the, like, overarching details, but I couldn't tell you half of what is going on uh, in that story. But I do know that they, there was a family feud, and these two, and this is kind of the story as old as time, uh, you know, Pocahontas is a great example of it. Uh, that you probably remember that it's this forbidden love between two families or two people that are feuding or two sides or whatever. And so uh, she meets Romeo at apparently, uh, I don't know if it was her father's party or his father's party, but she meets him there and she falls in love with him. And so she's sitting, lounging, you know, uh, beautifully on her, uh, in her, on her balcony and she's speaking to herself. And so she says, um, she says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, modern definition of what that means. That which we call a rose, the thing that we call a rose, if it was called anything else, it would still smell sweet. So she's asking, what's in a name? And obviously this makes sense in the context of it because she is forbidden to fall in love with this guy who has a name that that name shouldn't be spoken, shouldn't be mentioned. It's a, it's a name that's off limits. So she's angry about this and frustrated about this and, and, and doesn't understand that, you know, he, he's just a person. He, it's not just a name. He's an actual person. And so if I could channel my, my best... Um, 
teenage angst, uh, female teenage angst. Uh, she, it sounded something like this in the full context of it. Tis but thy name. This is my enemy. <clears throat> I'll, I'll lower it down for you. Tis but thy name in my, is my enemy. Thou art thyself, though not a Montag. What's Montag? I'm asking the same question, actually. What is Montag? It is nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. This is a female teenager, by the way. Just remember that. What's in a name? That which, we call, that which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet, sweet Romeo. So Romeo, can you imagine you're sitting down here just, <laughs> just listening? It's beautiful. Romeo's down below listening to her uh, talk angrily about this. So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called, retain that dear perfection which he owes Without that title, Romeo, doff thy name. I have no idea what that means. And for that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. Well, there you go. That's in its full context. You're welcome. That's my, my rendition. So she asked, what's in a name? Why do we put so much emphasis on names? He's just a person. He's just an individual. I love this, this guy. Why does it matter what his name is? So what is the significance of a name? What does it actually matter? Would we love Joanne any less if her name were Gertrude or Helga? I don't know. And I apologize if anyone is named Gertrude or Helga. Uh, it's a beautiful name. But would we, I'm just asking the question, would we love her any less with that name? Would we think differently of Austin if his name were uh, Reginald or Archibald? Possibly. But what's in a name? Now, major brands understand the significance of a good name. Here are some famous brands that you've probably heard of many times. It's commonplace, uh, these names, but here are some names that uh, may sound unfamiliar to you. If I said, just back rub it, what, what am I talking about? Just back rub it. Um, or if maybe I said, I found an article on back rub. Obviously, you'd think I was crazy and that maybe I found an article on back rubs, uh, but I did not. Which brand would I be referring to? Any guesses in the room? I found an article on Backrub. Nobody? That used to be Google. Google was going to name themselves Backrub. So I'm thankful now that it's become a common household phrase and name and part of, I think, even the dictionary. It's a verb now. Uh, the word Google, I'm so thankful that it was not Backrub. But that was what it was initially going to be called. Number two, if I said, I just spent too much money on Kadabra, uh, or I have a slight addiction to buying things on Kadabra, what would I be referring to? Amazon. Kadabra was going to be Amazon. Or what, if, what about if I said, um, 
check out my new blue ribbon sports and showed you my new shoes or shirt or whatever it was I was wearing. Check out my new blue ribbon sports or how about the famous ad slogan, just do it, blue ribbon sports, Nike. So a lot of brands at one time were going to be called something completely different than what they are today. And you know, even, I could probably insert the word Google if it had been called something else, and you would still think that sounded weird too, or I could um, insert Amazon, and you would think, what, what does that have to do with anything? Um, but these names, because of, and, and even the word Nike, the word Nike, you know, to me would mean nothing, but to, to say that name now, I immediately identify with all that they associate with, all that they're about, Everything they sell, all of that is wrapped up and, and surmised up into that name, Nike. So some brand names have achieved such name recognition that they define an entire category of products. We've mentioned this before, but things like Kleenex. You no longer call it a tissue, you call it a Kleenex, even if it's named something different. Um, I've even heard somebody, uh, now this was an older person, but no offense to the elderly, but they had said, just Google that on YouTube. Just Google that on YouTube. Um, or I've also heard people say, just Google YouTube and then go to YouTube and search this. Um, but brands spend millions, if not billions of dollars to, to uh, shape people's perception of who they are. But in just moments, they can have their entire name and reputation ruined by negative press, by something negative that happens on social media, by, by someone coming out and saying something or something happens and, and their name can be ruined for years. We've, um, we've done that many times with brands and, and things, but we also do that with each other. We, uh, we may have a great reputation, we're a great person, we have all these great things going for us and then uh, all of a sudden one thing happens to us and our name is ruined. So I want to ask you today, what do others call you? What do others call you? Everyone has their, their own perception of you, uh, some good, some bad, and often people name you based on those perceptions. Now we've all got nicknames. Anybody have a good nickname in the room? Grew up with a nickname that everybody knows you by or calls you. I, uh, I was actually affectionately known by my cousins as either Slim or Slim Jim. Uh, if only nicknames were prophetic. At the time, I guess I must have been pretty slim, or I, I'm not sure, maybe I was eating a Slim Jim, but either way, that name stuck, and that's what uh, even Josh, uh, my cousin Josh Sheets, calls me that to this day when he sees me. Hey, Slim. Hey, Slim Jim. So the name stuck for whatever reason. Uh, I also had the nickname Timber because it was on my license plate in high school, and people would yell out in the halls, and it was this whole thing, it was kind of weird. I, they would yell out, Timber, and I would pretend that I was falling. It was a weird time. It was like early 2000s, just a weird time. But I had it on my license plate. People knew me by Timber, and, uh, and hey, it made, I, I made some friends that way, so it worked out. But there's people, you know, define you by something. There, there's some, some uh, thing that you're perceived by, and it could be that it's an action you took or something you did or, or a way that you live your life or something you said. It could be any number of reasons why someone calls you something. 
Um, but worse than just an awkward nickname is people referring to us and defining us by our weakest moments. Now, taking a turn here, someone referring to someone as a liar, that guy is a liar. It might mean that you lied once in a moment of weakness. You might have even, even just been a, a white lie, even just a, a mistruth, something slight, something minor, but someone will label you easily as a liar. Or maybe he's a jerk. Uh, could mean that you lost your temper at one time and now everybody thinks of you as, as a jerk. Maybe it's that she's mean. Um, might refer to an interaction someone had with you on a bad day. And all of a sudden, people define you by that label. Or maybe even deeper than that, she's worthless. Could refer to a low point in your life. These titles that others place on us often become the way that we define ourselves. Someone who was unfairly defined by a moment of weakness was Thomas. Thomas is commonly referred to as Doubting Thomas. That's a pretty rough, uh, rough name to have associated with you by having maybe a couple moments of a lack of faith or lack of trust. In John, this is uh, John 20, verses 24 through 29. We're going to read about Doubting Thomas John 20, 24 through 29. It says, Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, he was one of the twelve disciples, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. Now, this sets up as something where uh, he hadn't been there, and so maybe it says more about the lack of trust that he had in the disciples than the lack of trust that he had in God, number one, because he said, um, they, they told him, we, we saw Jesus. And, 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 you know, this is a group of guys that are from a rough background. These aren't always maybe the most trustworthy individuals. These were great men of God that God had called, but, but they, they had their flaws. They, they weren't Jesus Christ themselves. And so he, uh, when they said that, that we had seen Jesus, we've seen Jesus, he said um, to them, unless I see his hands, the print of his nails, and put my finger um, in, uh, put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So because of that moment, we label Thomas as doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas in a moment of weakness. Now imagine that if it was one of us and we had a moment of weakness and a lack of faith and you know, we've done it all the time. We stand here at these altars or or even at our, our homes, and we say, I just, I don't know how God's going to do it. I just, I can't, can't imagine God's going to do this. There's, this seems impossible in my mind. So many things, and then for us to just label you for all of eternity as the doubting uh, follower of God. That's a pretty rough thing to have to go through. But it says in um, verse 26, it says, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, Jesus came, the door being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, knowing that Thomas was full of doubt and full of a lack of faith, he, he, reached, he said, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. 
So Jesus, knowing that Thomas was a, a little bit, had a little bit of doubt, he gave him an opportunity to alleviate that doubt in his mind and help give him some faith. And Thomas answered and said to him, now quickly after this interaction, Thomas says, says to him, my Lord and my God. He believes it when it happens. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet and believed. Now better to have just had full blind trust and faith in God that it it was that he was who he said he was, but Thomas didn't do that, and Thomas was human, and Thomas had doubts and, and all of that stuff, but we label Thomas as doubting Thomas because of that interaction. Jesus discussed his own persona in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus' uh, brand, if you could call it that, so to speak, was starting to form and, and starting to, he was starting to get a reputation around uh, town and people were sh weren't sure exactly who he was or what to make of him. So Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew 16 and verses 13 through 16, he asked them this question, who do men say that I am? Who, what is the perception of me? Now, I know a lot of us probably wouldn't want to ask that question. Who do people say that I am? What do people say about me? What are they saying about me? But he says that in Matthew 16, 13 through 16, and I apologize if it's slightly different. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Um, but it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, what do men say that I am? Or say that I, and I like how he clarifies here, what do men say that I, the son of man, am. So they, they said, uh, some say John the Baptist, and some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, and one of the uh, prophets, um, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon, in, in a moment of faith, because he wasn't always full of faith, Simon, in a moment of faith, speaks up and says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So he speaks faith and believes it because he's been with Jesus and he believes it. And so being misunderstood, misrepresented, and even falsely accused was something that Jesus knew well. Jesus, Jesus was the, when he came onto the scene, not only did they, I mean, did they say negative things about him, but they also didn't know if he was John the Baptist or didn't know if he was some prophet or that he was maybe Elijah. And so they, they just had this idea that he's a great man of God, but we don't know exactly who he is yet. And so he's coming to establish himself and who he is and what he's all about and what the name of Jesus represents so he literally wrote the book on being misunderstood by writing the Bible. Simon had that moment of, of faith and he believed that Jesus was who he said he was. But the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and 4, talking about him bearing our grief and carrying our sorrow. He's the one who understands uh, who we are and where we're at in life. He came in flesh, robed in flesh, so that he could better understand who we are. And talk about misunderstanding and misrepresentation of who someone is. Jesus Christ couldn't misunderstand us because he became us to the, and, and, and came to this earth. 
In Isaiah 53 and verse 4, it says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrow, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We're talking about the same people, his own people, that crucified him. Not realizing, not knowing what they truly had. That Jesus was the Savior. But it says that even despite all that, despite knowing that, that, we, would, uh, that we would do him wrong and that we would misunderstand him and, and not uh, truly line up with him. And I think it, you know any of us in this room, we would like to say we wouldn't have crucified Jesus, but given the fact that some random stranger walks in the room today into the church and says, I am Jesus Christ, I am the Son of the Most High, I'm all these things, I think there'd be some doubters in here. But he says that he came and he bore our griefs and he carried our sorrow, yet in the middle of all that we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So what do others call you? What are you known by? And what is others' perception of you? I also want to ask the question today, what do you call yourself? Because this, it, you know, a lot of times we can uh, block out all the white noise of what people uh, think of us, and we can just, you know, you, you hear the phrase, do you, just be yourself, whatever. Don't worry about every, all that white noise and what everybody else is saying about you, but what do you truly internally call yourself? Do you believe that you are a child of God or do you believe that I'm a sinner, I'm a rank sinner, I don't deserve God, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a part of church, I don't, I'm not even worthy to be there. How do you perceive yourself? Others may place on us titles and names, but what do you call yourself? Sometimes we judge ourselves too harshly. And maybe life has been unfair and life hasn't been exactly what we wanted it to be, but we sometimes judge ourselves by our least great qualities and the, the worst things that have happened to us. In the story of Naomi and Ruth, Naomi, um, she was married to Elimelech and, and she was the mother-in-law of Orpah and Ruth. And after losing her husband and her two sons, they had left to go to uh, come out of Bethlehem because of the, the drought that was happening there. So in this foreign land right now, and, and they're going through um, a, a season of drought and all of this stuff, and so there's all this uncertainty. And in the middle of all that, she loses her husband and she loses her children, her two sons. Now, she had had two um, daughter-in-laws with her, and so um, they were still with her, and, and they had even wanted to uh, stay with her, but she had recommended that they go and and she was in this just really dark place in her life this really deep and sad place to be in and so she probably felt betrayed or mistreated she probably felt on that things were just unfair and so if you turn in Ruth uh, chapter 1 and verse 20 through 21 we find um, we find Naomi in the the middle of her most one of her most darkest places where she has nothing, she's in the unknown, she doesn't have any clue what is to come next. And so Naomi, um, it says here in, in Ruth 1 and verse 20, it says, but she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Now this is, her name Naomi actually meant sweetness. And, and the Bible, there's so many, um, so much meaning in the names that we 
that, that, that these characters are called. They have a certain uh, meaning to them. And many times, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but many times um, people go from a certain name that defines them to Jesus changing their name completely. And so um, Naomi in this moment, she could identify herself as her given name, as her true name, but she instead says, um, uh, do not call me Naomi, meaning sweetness. She says, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? How or what do you call yourself? She called herself Mara in regards to a moment of deep bitterness and, and sadness and depression in her life. She wanted to identify with that name Mara. People call me Naomi, but you can call me Mara. Now, I love the way that the Bible Knowledge Commentary puts it. It says, Naomi left Bethlehem because of a food famine. She returned with a famine in her soul. Naomi had, had set out on this adventure with her family, with all the expectations that God was just going to provide and everything was going to be great and everything was going to be fine. And she finds herself in the middle of absolute depression and refers to herself by the name Mara. Now that name, Mara, has deeper roots and, and has been mentioned in the Bible before she says that. It says... Um, you know, she was depressed, she was lonely, she was in a foreign land, widowed and childless, and at her low point. The name Mara, and its association with the word bitterness, because that name Mara means bitterness, and, and she even, you know, said that God had, you know, dealt with, dealt very bitterly with me. So she says that name Mara, which represents the, the name bitterness, and it would have a familiarity to people that heard that phrase or heard that name. Given the years before, Mara was, uh, Mara with an H, uh, was the name given to the place where bitter waters were found in the desert. In Exodus 15 and, and verse 22, it says, so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Now it sets that up to say a great miracle just happened. An amazing, miraculous thing just happened. They were leaving Egypt and they were getting out of Egypt and, and going through the desert and all of a sudden the armies are following them and they're chasing after them and all of this stuff is happening. And then in the middle of all that, God parts the waters and they walk through on dry land and closes the waters back up. And even right before this, if you, if you read on your own time in Exodus 15, um, right before that they're even singing songs of praise to God for delivering them from this great uh, situation they're in. And so Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, it says. Then they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. Now when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. So that root word of the word Marah that she used meaning that God has dealt with me very bitterly, was the same uh, name that is used in reference here in the scripture in Exodus where it says that Mara was a place of bitter waters. 
And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. When he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Like Naomi, we often view ourselves not by the greatest miracles that God has performed, the parting of the Red Sea type moments, or um, the moments of manna being given whenever, whenever you're hungry, or even this moment here of, of through that moment, the water um, was made sweet in, a, in the moment of bitterness. But like Naomi, we often uh, define ourselves by that and say that um, I am, you know, I'm no longer Naomi, but call me Mara because God has dealt bitterly with me. So we define ourselves by those moments that happened to us, not by those great miracles that God did. I want to ask one more question to you today, and that is what does God call you? God isn't concerned with others' perceptions of you. It doesn't matter to God what label you came in with. It doesn't matter what your, uh, what your family has called you for years. I'm, I'm thankful that Sister Lonnie, she's not here with us today, but I'm so thankful that she's been so transparent with us and honest with us about her relationship with her family. And, and it, it really is, it's, it's amazing to hear her testimony and, but, but that, those things that are said to us in those moments of anger, those moments of rage, those moments of, of frustration or hatred, most of the time stemming from something deeper in our lives that we're dealing with ourselves, we say things and we try and we put a label on people and we define each other by those things. So God doesn't care about the label that you define yourself as and, and the label that you came in with or the label that your parents gave you or the label that your spouse gave you or the label that your friends and your family gave you. God is in the name-changing business. And sometimes those labels that are on us are not only placed on us by other people, but they're placed on us by our own selves. We call ourselves worthless because we've been told forever that we're worthless. We define ourselves as something because we've heard it for so long and we don't believe that we can ever change, but God is in the name-changing business. He quite literally changed the name of many characters in the Bible. Abram, uh, known as uh, the, the word or the name defined as exalted father, became Abraham, father of many nations. Jacob, who was the son of Abraham, his name, meaning supplanter or disruptor, was changed to Israel, meaning he who struggles or strives with God. Jacob used his nature, his persona as a, as a disruptor, as a supplanter, the same person who grabbed hold of the heel of his brother to grab hold of God and to receive his blessing. Simon, in the Bible, we, we already read the scripture um, earlier. We read the scripture in Matthew 16 about Simon and, and him standing up and having faith and believing. Now that, that name Simon that you hear there actually means hearing, or it means to hear. And as you know, in the Bible, um, the Bible talks a lot about faith, and it says that faith uh, 
comes not only by hearing, but also by doing. And so Peter, at that time known as Simon, it says in, in Matthew 16, 17 through 20, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon, bar Jonah, the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He changed his name from hearer to foundation, rock. He changed his name from one who just hears, hears only. He changed his name to Peter. Sometimes you see him uh, referred to as Simon Peter, as a, maybe a, an example of who, where he came from. Simon being his given name and Peter, the name that Jesus gave him. But he said, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. And maybe he was just saying on this foundation, on this foundation of faith, you said, you know who I am. You said that you, you have no doubt who I am. You are Christ. You're the, the son of the living God. Peter says that and he says, this is, your name shall be Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. That name Peter literally means rock. So Jesus uses this moment to change people's perception of who Simon was by changing his name and persona completely. And, I, and he says in verse 19, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom, keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. You know, why did Jesus say that? Why, why did um, he tell them not to tell anyone? You know, maybe he wanted others to have that similar moment that maybe uh, doubting Thomas had or that others have had throughout scripture where they completely didn't believe that he was real. He wanted maybe others to have that moment of that, we call it come to Jesus moment. Maybe he wanted others to have that moment because, you know, um, Faith isn't just by hearing. It's not just by just hearing alone, but we actually have to put our faith into practice. We have to actually truly believe that what we hear is true. And so he commanded his disciples not to tell anyone that he was Jesus. Revelation 2 and verses seven, verse 17, these are letters that Jesus was writing, this, and this one to the church of Pergamum. In uh, verse 17, it says that he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And then shortly after that, in another letter to the church of Philadelphia, it says, Revelation 3, chapter, chapter 3 and verse 12. It says, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. What a great message we heard last Sunday about the pillar in the temple by Corey Hayes. And Jesus says here in his letter to the Philadelphia, it says, Him that overcometh will make a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go no more out. 
and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the, day, of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. You've heard of being a pillar of the community, an established figure. Jesus is telling us that those that overcome will have a permanent place in heaven. And most importantly, that he will identify with us. And he will give us a new name. Jesus was reminding them that, they had been, that he had been there every step of the way. I don't think it's a coincidence that he uses the word manna here and that he uses the word uh, and refers to the stone or the rock. Manna to him that overcome will I give to eat of the hidden manna, a reminder of the provisions he made shortly after that bitter moment at Mara. And the stone, I will give him a white stone and in that stone a name, a new name written. A reminder of the rock he called Peter, the rock that he would build his church upon. Jesus was known as the chief cornerstone, the standard for building and erecting a temple or building and erecting some, um, some structure, the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. And at the same time, he was the stone that the builders rejected. He was the man God in flesh, who knew our hurt, knew our grief, knew our sorrow, knew those moments of depression, knew those moments of anxiety. He knows what everyone else calls you and what everybody else refers to you as, and he knows exactly where you're at in your life. The one who not only just said that I understand you, and, and this is truly the most the deepest level that we can have with someone is, is to understand them through empathy, to actually feel their hurt and their sorrow, to actually not just have sympathy on someone because there's a lot of people that we can just look at and say, I sympathize with that. I, I understand what you're going through. But truly, there are some times that we can't even understand completely who God is and, and what he's trying to do in us. We can't completely understand that God truly loves us and cares for us. If our musicians could come. Going back to that passage in Isaiah 53. It says he is despised. And rejected by men. A man of sorrows. And acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were. Our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And we love to quote this scripture. We love to, to quote this passage of scripture. But he was wounded for our transgressions because it's such a victorious moment. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We sing these songs about healing. We sing these songs about, I believe that you are my healer. I believe that you are all I need. It goes so much deeper than that. It's not that he is just who you need, but he has become exactly what you needed. 
the one who understands every outside perception of you, all the faults, all the failures, all the mistakes, everything you've done in your past, sees you as you are and has given you his name. How many of you today want a name change? Maybe you're tired of Maybe you're tired of the perception everybody has of you. You're not going to be able to change everyone's perception necessarily. But if you just start to walk in step with God. How many times have you heard uh, a, a case where someone came to God and, uh, and everybody said, I don't even recognize you anymore. And all those names they maybe gave you before and all those titles they laid upon you that you're a liar, you're a cheater, you're, you're all these negative things, you're, you're worthless, you're not good enough, all of this stuff that's been said about you. Jesus takes that. He understands all of that. He sees that. You know, God even, he, he even says in, in the scripture that, that man looketh on the outward appearance. They see, all the, they see the perception of you. They know who you used to be. And they know who maybe you even are right now. But God looks on the heart. And he knows exactly where you're at. Can we stand today all over this place? And I believe that today God wants to transform, first of all, your heart. And you can't control everything on the outside. You can't always control everything that everybody thinks about you. And you might have lived a horrible, terrible life to this point. But I'll tell you one thing. None of us in this room right now um, are even able to judge you. Because we're all sinners. We've all made mistakes. And even the most, someone who thinks that they're perfect or thinks that they're, they're better than everybody else, that doesn't matter. In this room, and this is, this is because this is, this is what God has, has spoken, but we're all sinners saved by the grace of God. And we're all indebted to the cross. So I'm not here today to look at you and say that you're imperfect, you're not good enough, what you've done to this point isn't good enough. I'm sorry, you can't come to this altar. This is off limits. We don't have a, have a rope or a, a barrier here because you can't get there. But this is a place where everyone can come to this altar. I don't, I, don't care, I don't care what has happened in your life. There's not anything you've done that's gone too far for God to reach you. You could be accused of murder. You could be accused of the most heinous of crimes. I mean, it's difficult for us to even understand the way that God probably looked at Adolf Hitler. Because by man's standards, that man, and I tell you, like, he was a horrible human being. But God would forgive him if he asked. God would love him if he asked. And that's where we're at today. Can you just close your eyes where you're at? And I know that you might be internalizing this as far as who you are and what people perceive you as and where you are in your relationship with God. But God loves you today and he doesn't care about all the past. He doesn't care about all the mistakes. When we're covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, we are unrecognizable. 
are covered in the blood of Jesus, people will look at us differently. And God just wants you today, if you feel comfortable to come to this altar and find a place to pray, God just wants to speak into your heart today and tell you that it's okay where you're at. It's okay what you've done. It's okay where you're at and all the things, all the mistakes you've made because I say that you're good enough. You're good enough to come to this altar, good enough to feel my presence and experience my love and my mercy and my grace. Can we come today? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus.